welcome to the third episode of the BTT Podcast. Today, I will be your host, Joseph, and with me today is a very special guest uh, coming from Tufts University, uh, is going to be Josh Cohen. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I'm really excited to be here and can't wait to get this started. Very good. So um, I wanted to just first get you to introduce yourself on like how long you've been debating, uh, what you, where you go to, I already introduced where you go, but like what you study there and uh, what you're up to nowadays. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it kind of helps the way we met each other was through the Canadian high school circuit. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm from Montreal. I went to, I went to Selwyn for high school and then went to Dawson College, good old CJEP. Uh, and I, I got my enriched pure and applied sciences degree there. And from there, I'm now at Tufts University. I'm still debating. <laughs> um, I, I started in all the way back in grade seven. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah, I know. I was talking with uh, my, my high school debate partner, uh, and it's crazy. I've been doing debate for about 40% of my life, which is just crazy to think what, about. Eight years, right? Something like that. Eight, nine years, yeah. Uh, but a little bit more just about me. I, I'm a student here I, at Tufts. I study sociology and applied math. I'm a double major. Uh, and I spent the summer working in admissions. Uh, I was a tour guide on campus, but I mean, I was also, it, the title is technically intern. Uh, so I, I answered phones and worked the desk and got to meet the admissions counselor. So that was a lot, a lot of fun. Um, but in terms of my involvement in the debate community, I mean, obviously I was very active in high school, just, you know, debating on the circuit. Um, I did the full <laughs> five years, seven through 11. Um, and then I, I did some coaching in my time there as well. Uh, in CJEP, I continued to coach um, and then started on the university circuit there. Uh, COVID hit in my novice year, so that cut it a little bit short. But I continued to debate online and... Uh, I'm I'm all the way in in my third year of the university circuit now, which is crazy to think, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, cool. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, just as follow up, is in your time in the admissions, you like get to know the stuff that happens in admissions, what they kind of value, or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. So obviously, each university is going to be different, um, and and I do have to put up the disclaimer that I, while I have gotten an insight as to the decision-making calculus that goes on. I am not the be-all and end-all of university admissions. So I will share my insight as a debater who has spoken with the Canadian rep. His name is John at Tufts, um, and he's a really nice guy. Um, But largely, and this is just general advice, kind of irrespective of debate, there are two parts to the application in terms of what they're looking for to answer a question more directly and and just kind of the logistics of applying to American universities. Um, The first is the data. If you're applying to Canada, this is all that matters. These are your grades. If you're applying to the States, they also care about the context in which that grade is gotten. So are you taking the most advanced version of that class? Are you in, so for example, if you do languages, are you in the advanced language stream? Uh, if your school offers advanced placement classes or AP classes, uh, are you taking those classes? And obviously, even if your school operates with a different number scale, 
So obviously I was applying from C-Shop, so I, we had the R score. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but obviously, if you come from different academic contexts where the averages might be higher or lower, it's the job of the university admissions counselor to know the context of your school. So if the number you have might seem lower, don't worry about it. I will also add that grades are the lesser important category of the two when applying to American institutions. Um, I got into Tufts with 70s on the board, which even in the context of my academic institution uh, is not necessarily the best. <laughs> and that is not to say anything against Tufts. That is because when evaluating um, individuals, they the American universities care more about um, the community member you're going to be than the actual grade you're going to get. Because there's some silly statistic that like 75% of the people that apply to these top tier universities are all equally qualified. And so the way that you get distinguished um, from there is in the second part, which is the voice component of your application. When you go through the... So first of all, unless you're applying to law or med in Canada, this voice component does not matter. In the States, though, it does matter very much. I would say even more so compared to the numerical portion. This is made up of a couple different things. The first is your letters of recommendation. Uh, the first one will usually be from your guidance counselor. And I will say that if you come from a school of, say, 10,000 students and you don't know your guidance counselor as well, the universe, it's the university's job to know this. And if that letter isn't as glowing as it otherwise would be for a smaller school where you might work more closely with your guidance counselor, that's taken into consideration. But then there's also the letters of recommendation from your teachers. Um, Tufts requires one. I submitted two. Um, just a piece of advice. <laughs> Don't just go to a teacher and be like, here's my CV of things that I've done. Might be something nice. No. Pick a teacher that you know intimately, um, that you like, um, that you're willing to have a sit-down conversation with, uh, and that will write a letter that you genuinely believe will reflect your qualities. Then there are the essays. The Common App requires the big chunky one, um, and then each school will often require specific ones as well. Um, obviously, one of the probably obvious ones is going to be, why are you applying to our school? <laughs> uh, but each school is going to have their own individual set. Right, yeah, we'll be elaborating a lot more with the individual questions we'll be talking about but yeah that's a good overview of how you want to understand the the american university application system um before we hop into that uh, given that we are a debating podcast the first thing i wanted to ask you is how debating relates specifically to university applications as much as it hurts for me to say a lot of people debate in high school at least in the younger grades because it's like good for their resume how good is debating really for your resume? Just as like an overview, then I'll like delve into like kind of specific questions on that too. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Um, I think the importance of things like Team Canada can sometimes be overstated. <laughs> good. Um, I'm glad that's the case. And I, and I know that, um, and I, it's because I was listening to the episode last week where it's like, 
your sole focus should not be to get onto Team Canada, right? I was not on Team Canada. Um, I, that was a very explicit decision of mine to not go to tryouts. Um, and I still very much made it into that elite tier American university that you're looking at. So the fact that you say good as <laughs> your reaction is definitely uplifting in terms of the, the trends of the circuit. Um, what matters more? And obviously this is going to vary school to school. But what I can say from John, who's the Canadian that would be reading over your application, he doesn't know what the difference is between the tournaments. Right. Whether you win at a repi tournament or win in a not repi tournament doesn't matter. Mm. What matters is how you write about debating. Because there are a million different debaters applying from all different parts of the world. So this is what's going to differentiate you in general in an essay is not the quality to which you pursue debating, but the quality to which you write about your pursuit of debating. So I can speak to my experience because I wrote my big um, personal essay for the Common App about my debate teaching experience. This is independent of any debate successes that I had at the high school level or at the university level. This is about the passion that I had for communicating, you know, my joy of teaching and sharing in that experience of my students growing with the admissions officers. And I, I can't speak for them because I didn't read over my application, but I'm assuming that's what got me in. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's less the accomplishments that matter, but more what the accomplishments mean to you and how you were able to write about them. Because there are just so many different debaters applying and they're all going to have star-studded applications. So what's going to differentiate you is how they feel you're going to contribute to their debate community at the university level, for example, and what you're going to bring to their debate society. Because uh, it's not enough to just say, here's what you did at the high school level. Cool. There's a whole bunch of other qualified people. But what are those qualifications going to mean to our university and to our community? Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the assumption I'm going to make, but I kind of want to discuss with you is if you see like debating on an application or like model UN on an application or like DECA on an application, the more so important thing is how you write about each of those things, not even what they, they really are, right? Absolutely. Um, and the reason for that is because there are just so many people these days that have those things on their CV. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you pointed it out exactly um, in that the culture just does exist to push for this. So you can list your accomplishments all you want. A list is not going to be the tipping point in your application. Not to, not to pull up the tipping point analysis <laughs> in a debate podcast. Uh, but they're looking for uh, passion and writing and community involvement more than they are strictly accomplishment. Right, yeah. And is there a difference between these kinds of extracurriculars, like the three I listed, versus um, maybe ones that aren't so like competitive or like intellectual-based compared to like Sports is like kind of a separate thing, but like if you just have like a different hobby in like knitting or cooking or something like that, is there a particular advantage to doing things like debating? So I think it's interesting that you ask this question because admissions offices look for well-rounded classes. So it's not to say that one provides a particular advantage over another, but if you are most impassioned by say cooking, for example, and you've had to feed your family in the pandemic because your parents have had trouble maintaining full-time work and have had to take on two, three jobs, you are more than welcome to write about that. Uh, 
And it's why often the university-specific questions will narrow it down to things like community involvement instead of extracurricular involvement to broaden the scope of people to apply regardless of your financial background because, I mean, yes, this is a debating podcast, but debating can often be uh, a, a, some like can be sometimes a financial barrier to entry. So regardless of that financial barrier to entry, all extracurriculars are considered um, with relatively equal weight because they understand that people come from different backgrounds. And I want to, one thing I want to add, because <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if this is going to get brought up later, but better bring it up now. The admissions officers are not what the circuit believes them to be. And I had a particular amount of pain hearing this in the QCID final, like the QCID high school tournament final, yeah. um, when OG is like, ah, yes, the old white men who would enjoy French Renaissance art. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> At Tufts, a lot of the admissions officers are recent graduates in the classes of 21, 20, and 19. Um, and this is the job they've taken just after graduating. They are young people. They are nice people. They are considerate people. One of them even makes a joke in their info session about how they're not, in fact, the stereotype waiting with the big red deny stamp. Like, <laughs> these are people, too. They're not looking for reasons to deny your application. So, and, and I guess the reason I bring this up now is to tie into your earlier question. If debating is not the thing you are most impassioned by, don't write about it for your big common essay because every school is going to read that. Write the thing that you are most passionate about, that you want every school to see, this is who I am selecting. This is who is going to come to my school and contribute to my culture. Um, and ultimately, that's going to be uh, the impression you want to leave on them. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One more thing that's related to this specific topic is, let's say you're someone who is a big keener for debate and you dedicate a lot of your time to debate, you probably give up some of your other smaller extracurriculars. Is that probably going to have a harm on your application? Is it going to help by being more invested in debate and maybe more successful? Or is it just kind of based on how you write about it that that actually matters? It's funny because this was me. Um, I... I did music as well. Um, this was me too, by the way. Yeah, this is me. And, me and yeah, exactly. This this tends to be a lot of debaters. Um, <laughs> uh, I gave up more music than I would have otherwise liked, and I've definitely picked it back up in university, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but I think I would say here is represent who you are to the universities. Um, I think that there's a certain faith that every university applicant lacks in the process, in that. The admissions officers are good at their job. If you get rejected, it is not because you are not a good enough candidate. Uh, there are plenty, there, there are, in fact, an oversupply <laughs> of good candidates. But there aren't necessarily an oversupply of people who match the culture of the university. So don't try and pretend to be someone you're not. If you do a lot of debating, write about debating, because you likely do debating because you enjoy it. If you want to continue debating at the university level, write about it in your application, because you want the university that admits you to admit you for who you are, so that when you get to university, you will actually enjoy yourself. I think that's an important consideration. Because where you do get in, because you will get in somewhere, right? 
Um, if you have the luxury of doing debating, you're probably academically gifted already. Um, it's going to be okay regardless of where you go. So wherever you do go, you want to know that you're going to fit the culture, want to know that you're going to integrate seamlessly, and that can only be really done to the truest extent if you represent yourself uh, as you are on your application. So if you feel you are a debater, represent yourself accordingly. If you feel you are better uh, represented in other ways through your other life pursuits, write about those other life pursuits. Mm -hmm. And on the university culture thing, so there's kind of two scenarios I imagine with people who are watching. One is the scenario where you just kind of trust that you apply to a bunch of schools that you think are good and are prestigious or maybe just that you think are good. And then whoever you're the best fit for just kind of accepts you. I think that's the minority. And then there's a group who wants to get into Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. So for that specific, for those like groups of people or like who want to get into some kind of specific schools because it's a school that they've always wanted to go to, is there a way, is there a way to figure out the kind of culture that you can try to fit into or is that not a good thing that, not a good idea for you to try to do? So it is definitely a good idea to try and get a feel for the culture. Mm. I would highly recommend that. I mean, as a tour guide, I recommend talking to your tour guides if you get the chance to visit campus, whether it be through an online tour, which I know Tufts is offering. I don't know if every school offers them. But uh, if you manage to go in person to a tour, talk to your guides, ask them questions. You are never being annoying. They do this job because they love answering your questions and love talking to you, especially ask for their emails at the end of tours. Um, I mean, yes, I'm mandated by my employer to give out my email, but I am also like, I genuinely enjoy answering these questions over email. That is a great way to get a gauge of the culture. Um, it's just by talking to students who are there because any student that is admitted is someone that the admissions office has deemed a suitable like representative of the culture, especially the guides, like the student guides who make it to the admissions office. These are the people who the admissions office has deemed are worthy of representing the institution. So that's a good starting point. Um, it, whether you can, if you can visit campus in person, that's a great way to do so as well. Um, try and just like walk around campus, keep your ears open. In my personal experience, I, I was led astray as well because it was COVID. I didn't quite know what I was doing. I was trying to uh, apply everyone. I applied mostly to Ivy's. And um, in my journey, now that I look back on it, I would not have done well at an Ivy. <laughs> I'm uh, not a straight enough arrow for that. So don't apply everywhere just for the sake of applying everywhere. If you're quirky, like me, don't apply to the Ivies. It's not worth the effort because it does take a lot of time and effort to write those essays well and to give yourself a legitimate chance of getting in. Instead, only apply to the institutions where you feel you could genuinely see yourself and actually enjoy your time, especially because I'm assuming a lot of your viewership is going to be Canadian. It yes. is an additional expense to go to the United States, right? So it's only really worth it if your quality of education is going up to a considerable degree. So at that point, only apply where you really feel you can benefit both academically, culturally, socially, um, as opposed to a Canadian institution that might otherwise be cheaper and just as academically prestigious. Right, yeah. And when we're, ta when we're talking about culture, I know some people get like, confused at what you mean by culture so what exactly like encapsulates culture what are like the factors that help you understand what the culture is in like a school yeah 
I think there are a few different factors. The first is going to be the presence of Greek life on campus. Um, and this also ties into the drinking culture that exists because uh, alcohol exists <laughs> and universities exist. Um, and if you want to go to a big party school and enjoy your time in university, you're welcome to do so. But as, as someone who doesn't drink myself, I have a medical condition that doesn't en enable it. It was an important consideration for me to pick a, a university where that might not have been something for me. So I was looking for a school that um, had a smaller drinking culture um, and a smaller Greek life. What this is, a Greek is life? the type of information? Yeah, so Greek life is just like uh, it's when you hear the like Greek letters in terms of like themed housing with fraternities and sororities. Um, it's that kind of stuff, and they're going to host a lot of parties with a lot right. of drinking. The next consideration is whether you want to be like in like to what extent you want to be in an urban environment. If you want a smaller school in a more rural setting, um, there are a whole like Canadians will often look at Dartmouth, Middlebury, um, that kind of stuff. Obviously, in cities, there's um, Harvard and Boston. There's NYU in New York, uh, Columbia, in New York as well. And then there's the stuff in between, like New Haven, which hosts Yale. Um, so just based on where you're from, what you're looking for, um, different people want different levels of urbanization in, in their university life. Obviously, smaller towns lead to more drinking, um, which led me to oh, really? I, I didn't Boston. <laughs> yeah, um, and the reason for that uh, tends to be that in those small college towns, there's no city to resort to if you want to do social life and have things that are non-drinking activities. Um, and so I not this isn't true of all small town colleges, but there's this is definitely true of some of them. Um, I will also add that every school is different. So do your research on each individual school. Um, I'm speaking in broad generalizations because I only worked for Tufts and I can only speak for Tufts in, in real essence. Um, and I'm happy to plug Tufts because I think it's a great school. Um, but uh, I think beyond like the degree of city you want to live in and Greek life, there's also the population of school. So do you want a big school or a small school? Um, do you want like big class sizes or small class sizes? Um, and then that honestly will start to narrow it down a lot. Then there's the East Coast, West Coast thing. Um, like how far do you want to leave home? Um, like, do you want to have a readily accessible flight or drive back to uh, your parents? These are all the types of questions that you have to do some degree of introspection on, either when you're applying or after you've received your acceptances. Um, preferably both. <laughs> uh, and from there, that will already narrow down the field. Some people will have individual criteria for them. So if you want... Um, a school that's more diverse, that's important to you, or more re resources for first-generation students, that might be an additional consideration for you. Um, so, for example, uh, some students want a greater percentage of Jewish folks at their school um, or, like, religious presence uh, at their school. Uh, for me, that wasn't as big a consideration, but I know for others it is. So you have to look at your own personal criteria. And then obviously there are finances. Um, looking at the school's financial aid policy um, is important. A lot of schools are 
need blind and will meet complete financial need at the upper echelon, but this isn't true of all schools, so you do have to do your research there. Especially if you're applying from Canada, the percentage of international students at a school might be something to to consider. Um, you want it to be high, but ultimately, or... well, it depends on what you want. You know, do you want to meet a lot of Americans, right. or do you want to meet other people from other nations? Right. So I, I was more so asking relating to the the financial aid kind of stuff. I know that can be limited yeah. to international students. Yeah, exactly. So you have to look at um, what each individual school's policy is are. In terms of these things and especially what you as a student are looking to get out of your university experience and i will admit this is not something that is easy to think about when you're not there yet um so i would encourage you to reach out to um, other university debaters and coaches you might be close to or other tour guides and admissions offices of campuses you might be visiting and they can help you kind of gauge what that might look like. If there are resources within your high school in terms of guidance counselors, or if you are using third-party organizations to help you with your application, talk to them as well, because they can help you down that path of introspection. I will say my family was a big help to me on this. So if if you have that kind of relationship with your family, I would encourage you to use them as a resource as well. All right. So I think we've talked a lot about the dating kind of stuff. I'm going to shift over a little bit to like grades, standardized testing, stuff like that, just so people can get like a Good grass. So the, so the first question I wanted to ask is, I know um, your area of expertise is in the U.S., so I'll ask about that. I believe in the U.S. a lot of places you, like, declare the major you might want to participate in. You can declare un- unsure. Is that is that correct? So Tufts uses a system where every student comes in undecided. Um, you can express areas of academic interest on your application, but you are under no obligation to do so. Every school is going to have a different system to this. Generally, a lot of schools in the United States will have what's the liberal arts approach. So some will have completely open curriculums where you choose all of your classes, um, some, like Brown. Some will have complete, like a core curriculum where there are specific classes that you have to take, like Columbia, and some fall a little bit in the middle, like Tufts, where there are distribution requirements you have to fill. Um, but ultimately, you do have plenty of time while you are an undecided student before you have to declare your major. Mm-hmm. This is the liberal arts philosophy, um, and this is one of the major academic differences between the United States and Canada, whereas Canada and the UK system as well, Australia's system as well, you apply to a major, you apply to a faculty. But in the United States, you apply to a university. Um, At at Tufts, we have a specific structure, which isn't uncommon, um, where we divide our undergraduate school in three parts. So there's the fine arts school, um, there's the engineering school, and there's the arts and sciences school, which is what you're picturing when you picture the liberal arts philosophy. Um, And so you would apply to one of those three, even though it's all under the Tufts umbrella. So that isn't uncommon either. But once again, each school will have their own structure. But generally, yeah, you'll see more of that liberal arts structure that you talked about there, Jeff. And I know a lot of people, well, this is some, most people take this for Canada, but some people do take it to help themselves in the US, which is the instance of taking three sciences in high school, all of the grade 12 level. I'm going to assume that doesn't matter especially when you're all going in as undecided or when you have a loosely declared major uh for a lot of places i'm guessing yeah so i i mentioned this before but universities look for you to 
take the more advanced classes in the area in which you study. So if the school you go to doesn't offer AP economics, don't worry that you didn't take it because the admissions will only take into account what your grades are and what classes you took in the context of what you, your environment was. If you drop sciences, they're not going to judge you for dropping sciences. And obviously this may be more true of some schools than others. So uh, some schools will look for students who have a broad variety of interdisciplinary um, interests, where some schools that might be a little bit more literature heavy, um, like I know Columbia is big on books and reading, like that's their thing. Uh, they will be a little bit more peeved if you drop all of your literature classes. <laughs> um, and so it really depends on the school. Um, but yeah, don't just take three sciences because that's what your school offers. If you don't think about pursuing sciences, because you won't be able to write passionately about the academics you've done. Um, and then that's going to reflect accordingly in your application, which is not going to help you. Right, yeah. So on, on that as well, um, I think some people especially, uh, or maybe not especially in debating, but some people have certain subjects that they're not super interested in and they don't do super well. Is that the same? Uh, like, is there like a big harm to that? Does that kind of just drag the rest of it down? Should you be really worried about that kind of thing? No, you shouldn't. Um, I mean, <laughs> for debate rounds, you might want to shore up your area of weakness. I mean, there's only so many rounds you can go without hitting an IR motion. But um, in terms of your university applications, no. I think the illustration I would give for this is, is through one of Tufts' uh, essay questions this year, which is um, what area, what excites your intellectual curiosity? Um, and I know when I was applying to Yale, their essay question was, if you could teach one course, what course would you teach? Um, so as long as there is a sufficient degree of stuff that you are passionate about in classes that you take, and you're still excited about learning, you're still fine. You're still golden. Um, that, but I, I think you lose some of that when you take three science classes if you don't enjoy your sciences. Uh, because then you're spending your time studying things that you don't enjoy, and that detracts from the joy of learning on the whole, um, which is something that's independently sad to see. And I mean, as someone who enjoys learning, I would love to see other people be happy learning. Um, but also, it will come across in your application when you try and write about things that excite your intellectual curiosity, and you've just lost the passion and lost the drive. Right, yeah, exactly. It sounds like the takeaway should be just to make sure you have investment into things that you enjoy, that you can write about, and that you can actually do with your future. So yeah, good. Yeah, I, I mean, just do what you like and continue to do that. Um, and I mean, this is my personal philosophy towards debating as much as it is any other subject, which is just until you stop enjoying it, continue to do it. And the reason I'm still in debate is because every time I go, oh, th this is my last tournament, I'm going to quit. Aww. I have such a fun time that it sucks me back in. And it's the reason that the majors I have are the majors I've declared, because I came to the United States looking for that liberal arts philosophy, um, not necessarily the philosophy major, but the liberal arts ideology, shall we mm -hmm. say, um, looking to kind of explore, because I wasn't sure what academic interests suited me. Um, and I 
have continued to enjoy math and I've continued to enjoy, and excuse me, I found the new passion of sociology. And insofar as that's what I enjoy for now, those are my majors. I mean, Tufts makes it really easy for you to change majors. So uh, that door is never truly shut. Uh, but as long as I continue to enjoy that stuff, yeah, no, I'll continue to do it. And just briefly for the people in the audience who probably don't know what sociology is, what do you kind of do in sociology? Oh my goodness, Joe. I'm so glad you asked me this question. Uh, this makes me so excited to answer. For those who know what anthropology is, sociology has been dubbed as anthropology with numbers. There's a couple of different things to sociology that really excite me. Um, and obviously the dictionary definition is it is the study of society. But it goes beyond that because yes, you study societal trends and analyses similar in the way you would do in a history class, but for what's happening right now, uh, and you also encompass some of that history stuff in terms of how does what has happened in the past lead us to where we are now. But sociology takes the cognition a step further and embraces some of the meta in terms of why do we ask ourselves the questions we do and why do we study things in the way in which we do. So I think there's some really cool methodology to sociology uh, that really excites me. In particular, the fact that sociology is a field in which you can have both quantitative and qualitative studies is really exciting. Because the fact that in one singular field you can have um, a study that is a 12-hour length interview series with 12 different candidates and drawing results from that, as much as you can have a survey that hit 100,000 people and draw conclusions from that. In terms of what you actually study, it can be just about everything. Um, you can, I, I mean, I took a really exciting class last semester about the sociology of mental health in terms of not the biological, you know, neuro signals. Yeah, exactly. Um, and biochemical stuff that exists in terms of um, how our mental health operates, but it encompassed some of that in terms of the different lenses we've taken to try and um, tackle mental health, um, but it race it, it it like the field goes far beyond that in terms of race and sex and gender um, and all of the stuff that we love talking about in debate. Um, so the fact that sociology is both so broad yet so specific uh, and and has a really unique methodology and metacognition is what really excites me about the field. Yeah, cool. That sounds like there's actually a lot of overlap between sociology and political science, at least to some degree. There's more. Uh, there there are like some courses that I've been taking that relate to like how we study things, the qualitative and quantitative aspect of that. So if you're interested in sociology, political science, feel free to reach out to either of us. Uh, I'll be happy to answer some of your questions. But back to more of the university admissions things. I know the other major question that people often have alongside grades um, is standardized testing. So I think there's just the SAT and the ACT. Yeah. Um, what is their importance in admissions compared to like grades? So, yeah, every school is going to take standardized testing differently. And right now, a lot of schools are going through a transition phase. And there's a lot of um, kind of, I don't want to say drama, but like uncertainty as to what is going to be made of standardized testing. Because Prior to COVID, standardized testing uh, was often required as a baseline requirement 
Um, and then COVID hit and standardized testing became hugely inaccessible for a lot of people, myself included. And so a lot of schools went test optional, meaning that you didn't have to include your standardized testing scores, um, your SAT, ACT, when you apply to university. Some schools are phasing out of that now. MIT is the first one that has really gone ahead and said, we are going to be requiring standardized testing in all of our applications. A lot of other schools, at least for now, are test optional. Tufts is one of those schools. We're doing a three-year pilot. This is the third year. So for any students applying from grade 12 right now um, in the 2022-2023 application year, um, your um, scores are not required. If you choose not to submit scores, it does not count against you. Everything is taken in the context in which it is given. So if you don't submit standardized test scores, the rest of your application is going to be the only thing they see. It's going to be the only thing they consider. They're not going to judge you more or less harshly for not submitting them. If you do submit test scores, they will look at them. It can count for you. It can count against you. The advice I would give is submit, and honestly, this is the same advice that admissions counselors give, is submit your scores if you are proud of them. Don't compare them to what other people have submitted. Got to do a little bit of introspection mm -hmm. <laughs> and say, this is what I put forward. This was my effort. Am I happy with this effort? If you are, submit it. I did not submit test scores. I got in. Tufts is about half and half uh, of people who did and did not submit test scores um, uh, as to who, who's in now. Um, so really, obviously every admissions office is going to treat this differently, but do not overly stress about standardized tests. Um, it is not the biggest determiner of whether you get in or not. Right, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've, I don't know, at least in debating, heard some, and, and like not just debating, I've heard some arguments about this being like a more standard way to judge people's like academic ability. So do some school, I'm guessing like some schools treat it more yeah. highly than grades because of how like flexible the grades thing can be? Yeah. The problem is, is that in, in, in particular in the last five years, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out about how standardized testing use very rich and very yes. white. Um, and so because of that, admissions offices as a whole have realized, uh-oh, this might not be the best metric. And while some offices still use it and, you know, they still take it under consideration, it is most certainly not the top priority as much as it was before. Mm. Um, in particular, in face of COVID, when there's a whole different kind of subset and all the universities are starting to crunch the numbers on how test optional years have affected their application pools. So I think a, a lot of offices are uncertain or in transition as to how they're going to treat this. And obviously I'm not in the offices, right? So I can't really speak to this, but the impression I gather is it's a, it's a, 
uncertain time for a lot of offices, but overall, it is not the most important determiner, especially because it's the admissions officer's job to know your school. Even if grades are on a different point scale, depending on the school, and it is difficult to compare student to student, this is why the admissions officers get paid the big bucks, right? This is where, the, this is where they do their work, um, is in those comparisons. So I would still say, do not overly worry about standardized testing. Only submit the scores if you're proud of them to institutions in which they are test optional. Uh, but if you are looking at schools and they are not test optional, definitely write them. And it's probably a worthwhile exercise to write the SAT and ACT anyways to yield the score and put in your best effort. And if after your best effort, you're not proud of the score, luckily a lot of schools are still test optional, um, at least for this year. Everything is ever changing. So we'll see what happens next year. Right, yeah. And when you say SAT and ACT, do you mean like you should probably write both or just like one or the other? Write one or the other. Um, I mean, they're going to evaluate the same <laughs> types of uh, work anyway. So uh, look, I, this is where uh, I, you kind of venture outside of my area yeah, of expertise. Yeah, no. I'm not a college counselor. You know, I'm not in the high schools helping you study for these. Um, and I actually even never wrote mine because it, when COVID hit it, I would have had to go to uh, Toronto to write it. Oh, uh, and I, that was not happening. Yeah, I was not traveling that distance in, uh, in, in a pandemic. Um, in particular, in a semester where I was, I was doing the three science classes in, uh, in <laughs> Dawson. So uh, yeah, I was, I was not doing that. Yeah, makes sense. All right, yeah. So beyond just the grade stuff, the stuff that matters more, as we briefly talked about already, is the other things that you do. I think we've talked a little bit about like other extracurriculars, uh, like music and arts. Um, I think we'll talk a little bit more in specific about music and arts and then about sports and uh, one special topic, which I'll save for you for in a bit. But um, is there a particular uh, benefit to actually having some kind of art as like a unique category that they consider, or is it okay to not have an art? Because I know that's a rumor that's floating around. Yeah, it's okay to not have an art. I mean, everyone's in debating, so I guess that could technically count as an art. Anyways. Does that count as an art? Um, oh my. I have no idea, man. <laughs> I don't know how they classify it. I, I think the advice of do what you enjoy holds true regardless. And it doesn't matter whether you do one activity and sink all of your time into it, because I know you can for sure sink all your time into debate, or whether you do six different activities and sink your time equally into all of them. Just enjoy high school because you only have high school once. Enjoy making friends in either one activity or many activities, but don't center your high school life about getting into university because then you're going to get to university and you're going to go, I'm going to spend these four years grinding for postgrad or grinding for jobs or grinding for med school or law school. And that's not what this is about. Like you, you got to take some time to have fun, take some time to enjoy yourself um, and yes, the university application process is not easy and you do have to take your time to write the essays and do your due diligence, but don't shape your entire high school career about doing things that aren't really authentically you. Uh, don't play the clarinet if you're not going to practice and you're not going to enjoy it because 
at that point, you're not getting much experiential out of it. Um, you're kind and, of wasting your time, right? Worth it to you. Exactly. You're, you're wasting time. You're wasting money. Uh, and you're wasting and you're wasting happiness. You know. Think of uh, the the trade off as we as we say in debate terms. You know. Yeah. Everything's a time trade off. <laughs> Don't waste it on things that aren't worth it. Yeah. Exactly. And like. High school is like five percent of your life. Like, don't throw it away. It's really, it's a really fun time. I look back on it very fondly. Um. So yeah, arts. How about sports? Does sports kind of work the same way, or is there a different? There's so like I know there's I mean, like recruitment and stuff, but like yeah, recruitment is a whole other ball game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. For that, you really have to be very good at what you do. Um. I I have a buddy from high school. He he got recruit recruited to Columbia Swimming. Uh. And he he did model UN as well. Like he did the whole gamut. Um, that is the type of thing that is like you really have to be exceptional at what you do to get noticed. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do for sure. It, mm-hmm. it is one hundred percent possible. Um, and especially for those D one schools, D two schools, you can you can definitely get scholarships from it. Um, but a lot of the schools that debaters are probably have their have their eyes set on mm-hmm. um like tufts uh, like tufts does not offer any athletic scholarships does not offer any merit-based scholarships it only offers need-based financial aid um and so you know like sports can help your application in particular if you're passionate about them in, in terms of the writing thing but look i wasn't really a huge part of any sports in high school or community college and uh, slash sejap yeah. um and i still managed to beat the odds <laughs> yeah. um so it yeah don't worry about it cool. same advice goes for everything else cool don't cool. do it if you don't enjoy it yeah that makes a lot of sense it applies to basically everything it sounds like right all right yeah so the super secret question i wanted to ask you is i don't know how much specific insight you have into this but can esports be considered one of your things that you include in your application and is that that's fantastic to it you know two w udc esports motions later um (laughs) (laughs) um absolutely yes um because it's whatever's it's whatever makes you excited you know especially when there are questions that are direct essay questions like what excites your intellectual curiosity you know how do what community do you contribute to like these are very common um questions across a variety of different schools uh, if you contribute to your esports club and that's the community you're involved in write about that community if it's really meaningful to you if um you know you led an esports class as a because i know some schools like high schools you can do that uh, write about that class you taught. Um, you know, if you if, if you, like you are complete, active in the competitively, yeah, exactly. If you compete competitively, write about that. If if you enjoy it, talk about the stress and the love that it brings you. I mean, similarly to the stress and the love that comes from debate, right? Um, but I, I'm glad you saved that super secret question because it goes to show that you can write about anything, you know, and it can be something that would otherwise appear benign. I know um, there was a UTS debater um, who wrote about his favorite coffee shop um, and that got him into Brown. So, <laughs> Oh, is that Max? Do not, okay, yeah. It is Max. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I, I would have assumed a lot of the viewers are, no, are too, too young know. to know Max. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't matter what you write about as long as you write authentically, as long as it matters to you. Um, ambitious officers love to read something different, love to read something authentic. Um, and so if you can give them that, that'll make them happy. Yeah, that sounds really good. I think a lot of people are like hesitant to write about it because they're like, oh, video games are a waste of time. Like that. But if you can write about it as you can for any other experience, sounds like it's probably more interesting to read than like the million essays that they probably see on debating on UN. Yeah. Don't do things to try and fit the mold of what admissions officers are looking for because admissions officers are not looking to fit a mold. They're looking to create a well-rounded class. And <laughs> uh, if I've learned anything this summer, it's that my mother's always right. Her her tagline for this is, you can be the best apple in the bunch, but if they're looking for an eggplant, you're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> so if, you know, esports are truly what impassions you, write about it. Make yourself the shiniest apple, and you just gotta damn well hope they're looking for apples. All right. So beyond that, beyond the SATs, beyond the grades, also, I don't know if you know about like the crazy AP culture that exists nowadays. Do you? Yep. People yep. in like grade I, 10 taking I'm aware. five APs. I took five APs in my grade 11 year, man. Right. It's, okay, uh, never mind. It, it, never, it never stopped. <laughs> okay. Just like, just stop. we'll talk about AP and like I can, t well, if you know stuff about IB, we'll also discuss IB, but like, it, does, does that contribute a lot? Does that matter a lot? Does that help? Is it worth your time? Um, so the thing about APs is everything is in the context in which it is given. I feel like I've said mm -hmm. this before, yeah. right? In that if your school offers five APs, do those five. If the five APs are all science and you do econ and you do, um, Social science, don't worry about it. Admissions officers just want to see that you're trying your best. And the same thing goes for IBs, right? Try your best in uh, A-levels. Um, and if it doesn't work out, uh, it doesn't work out. Um, but, you know, shoot for the stars and worst case, you'll land on the moon. Um, I took five APs, um, two of which my school didn't offer. At the end of the day, it doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, it, or at least it didn't for me. Um, How do you know that? Because, oh, excuse me. I'm speaking of when you get to university. Oh. Um, I don't know that in terms of the application process. Because when I got here, um, I mean, I did the community college thing anyways. But when I got here, I actually, like, by here I mean Tufts, um, I actually felt it was really helpful to retake classes. Um, because you just learn so much more at, a university yep. in, in particular um calculus three uh is is the classic example i will cite for this because i took it in community college uh at dawson uh i've gotten so used to saying community college for the american parents <laughs> and on tours i i've i've lost my use of sujet but yeah uh, at dawson i i took calculus three um and i i mean i i enjoyed it enough the teacher kind of taught out of the textbook a little bit and then i got to 
Tufts, and I, I took it again, it was a different class structure. There was recitations. It was a lot more individualized. I went to office hours more. Um, and I put in a lot more effort. And I did the same thing with linear algebra, um, which was taught for me as a summer course uh, at, at Dawson. And that also was a really rushed class. And it was taught, and that class, linear algebra in particular, was taught differently at Tufts in that at Tufts it was more proofs based, whereas at Dawson it was more me like mechanics computation based. Um, and so it was really valuable to retake those classes. So if you're taking APs to try and place out of classes at university, enjoy your university ride, you know? Like maybe if you want to place out of a couple of basic language classes, fine. But there's a reason where if you're going to be a math major, it's important to start at the base level math classes because they will just be taught better and in more depth and by better teachers at university um, then you will get very likely um, at the high school level. And while there are exceptions to this rule and that there are fantastic high school teachers that can teach AP classes super fun, like super well, um, do not take AP classes because you think it will lighten your load in university because it won't. You still have to take the same number of classes. Um, a lot of universities will not let you take credit for them unless the grade is good enough. Some will make you take a like exam to um, make sure you place actually know out it. of that class. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Make sure you actually know it, even though you got the grade on the AP. And I know AP classes declined in difficulty in particular online. So I'm assuming they're going to be even more strict with that. Um, so take APs because you would enjoy the class, because you would enjoy the material. Um, don't do it to try and lighten your load in university. Yep, and don't feel like you need to do it, especially if it's not offered for your the, like the things that you like at your school. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. For yeah, don't don't go out don't go out of your way to teach yourself a class if it's going to put undue pressure on yourself. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit different for Canada, uh, at least at McGill, and I believe at most of the Canadian universities, you will just be able to get the credit for it and also be able to graduate early with the extra credits. So they're nicer on that. So if that's one of the things you're interested in on having an easier load, that stuff does apply in Canada where it does not apply in the U.S. Just just so people I will also know. Yeah. yeah, I will also add for the U.S. stuff, um, visa work will mandate that you work that you like study full time. Um, mm. So you cannot take on a part time class load and then teach debate as a part time job illegal. Um, you have to be a full time student. Um, and then teach debate part time. And yeah, <laughs> well, there, there's a whole other set of uh, stuff on that. I, I can speak to that later if you'd like. But um, for the like course load, um, there's still like particular classes you have to take. So even if you take calculus three, you cannot get out of real analysis. So don't worry about like APs getting in your way. Like there's no benefit to being in the higher classes sooner because uh, then you won't be with your friends in the same year as you. <laughs> um, so it's also a social you know, experience to start from the bottom and, and work your way up, um, be on the same academic standing as everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Sense, sounds, sounds like people overemphasize these things a lot, a lot. Oh. This is what I was going to say before, which is the, if you're on a visa, I'm pretty sure you also have to do four years in the States. Like you can't just graduate a semester early. I didn't know that um, was a thing. 
Oh. Yeah, don't quote me on that, but I'm fairly confident that if you're here on an I-20, there is a very particular end date. Um, and I think you can definitely do summer classes. Um, I, like, in theory, it is mathematically possible to take summer classes and lighten your load and graduate early, but I don't know if visa work would allow you to do that. That's that's something that you would have to contact an international um, office for. Uh, to ask them a question of, because I'm genuinely uncertain of that. And maybe I'm just saying this because I lost the year in CJAP and I plan to do four years anyways. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. So be careful. There's a lot of stuff in the US you can't, you can't wiggle around that you probably could wiggle around again. Alrighty. Yeah. Uh, next thing is I just wanted to discuss a little bit on volunteering. I think the conclusion is going to be similar to the other things, but is there a particular, oh, so there's like, I know there's volunteering requirements in Canada to graduate, so you'll be covered for 40. Um, if you, I'm assuming it weighs into a balanced, um, a balanced and well-rounded application, but like if you don't like it, don't do that much. Anything you wanted to comment on relating to volunteering? Uh, yeah, I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head. It falls into the same category as the other things. I think the only difference with volunteering is in particular, some applications will, um, ask you to speak on some of the volunteering work you've Specifically? done. Specifically? Uh, yeah, I, I remember writing a couple of questions about how volunteering has shaped you in my application year. Um, I don't know what the essay questions are for all the schools this year, obviously. Yeah, fair. But a lot of those community-based questions of like, how have you contributed to your community are easier to answer if you have volunteer experience under your belt um, or if you're like, I know a lot of universities will ask questions about like, have you contributed to social justice? There's also a lot of volunteer work you can do there that would make uh, answering that question easier. Um, but uh, other than it can be used to answer a lot of the application questions, it's not in and of itself uh, like necessary, even if it would help your odds because it is just a more explicit category on the Common App. Um, and, and schools do look for it. That makes sense. Got a good grasp on that. So I think then the... But uh, one thing I just want to add to that is if your financial situation doesn't enable you to volunteer and you have to, for example, be a caretaker at home for your siblings, um, that financial situation is also taken under consideration in your application. So if you like have to work and make money instead of volunteering, or there are some other circumstances that prevent you from volunteering it is not the end of the world right you can still write about other things and answering those questions um your application is not dead because of it right yeah yeah no that makes a lot of sense for you know people i know there's like a model of the kind of well-rounded application you want to have you want to have 100 plus 200 hours of volunteering you want to have a really strong extracurricular you want to play at least one varsity sport I think then the question is, how much is enough or how much is like good and like a well-rounded application? Because I think people, I think one, people severely over or overestimate what actually is enough and end up like killing themselves doing too much. So like, what do you think is like enough? I know this is not like, it's a very open-ended question, but what's your take on that? Yeah, I will say that that student you've just painted is an a, unrealistic expectation, mm -hmm. and there are very few people that actually attain that. So the second part to that answer is, given that very few of those people meet that standard, 
who do you accept? And I can't speak to every student ever. But I will say different admissions offices look for different types of students. So it's worth looking into which schools you feel you will match best at and putting your best foot forward to go to those schools. Not in the sense of, like, don't apply to the schools just because you think you'll get in. Apply to the schools because you enjoy it and want to go there. Um, because that will lead to the best version of the answer for why do you want to come to our school? Right, you'll have the best um, reason. Exactly. And don't change yourself to fit the school. Present yourself, and the universe will have a way of working itself out. You will end up at the right institution. Um, I can speak to what I did and what worked for me in terms of getting in, because I can't, I, I don't know what the model is, but I am someone who has made it to the other side. I beat the odds. Um, I, I mean, obviously I had tons of debating under my belt. Um, I did music. I, I, I played the saxophone. I, I was in wind ensemble. Um, I volunteered, at, both as a debate coach for my high school team uh, for which I eventually took up a job for. And then I also volunteered, um, like a little bit earlier, uh, at, at an alternative day center for Alzheimer's, uh, like for people diagnosed with Alzheimer's and other degenerative diseases of that nature. Um, and I, I mean, I technically did high school track, <laughs> um, in the most technical sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't very good. I didn't have any accomplishments of any, and that's, that's for sure. Um, the, I think those were kind of the main hallmarks of my application. Um, I did, a, I did five APs in grade 11 and then went to CJEP and, and didn't do any APs there. Um, I didn't get fives on all my APs, so no pressure on that. Um, I, I got a three in AP Physics 2, I think, is, is the lowest grade I got. Uh, so no pressure in terms of grades there as well. Um, you have to submit even when I and should you submit all of them, even if bad? Uh, I, I think the same advice goes for the standardized testing. Okay. You don't have to submit them. Um, I think even the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the common app will only let you declare so many AP scores. Uh, it it will cap you. It will stop you. I'm not sure um, if that's true or not. People yeah, I don't know if that's true. Yeah. But either way, submit the scores if you're proud of them. I submitted my three. Um, and the way that works is you self-report your scores um, and you self-report the classes you're taking in your grade 12. And then if you're accepted, then you pay... Uh, the college board to send the common app confirmation of your scores just so that they can be sure you're not lying. Yeah. So don't lie. <laughs> don't lie. They'll catch you. Don't, don't lie. Yeah, not worth it. Any other final thoughts? Well, I was just going to say, I think final thoughts would be don't stress. It's all going to work itself out. Don't change yourself because you want to fit some non-existent mold. If you enjoy debate, do debate, but don't do debate because you think it looks good on a college CV because there are a million other debaters 
are also applying and will be able to write about it and talk about it better than you. Um, also probably and like it that more is going to make exactly and like it more than you. And that is going to make more of a difference on the application than the fact that you won some random tournament. Um, yeah. Alrighty. So the next thing I will go is I wanted to talk about like your experience coaching aspect of things. I know that's one of the other things you spent a lot of time doing high school yeah. for coach for Selwyn, right? Yeah, so I coached for Selwyn, the elementary team. Um, and then I coached so okay. I skate I got my start um probably before I was qualified <laughs> in grade eight when I led the like we had a like a weird amount of time in our quote activity period uh-huh. which was basically when for those of us who were doing so there were different schedules for the middle school and the high school um and so in we would have like those of us who did our sports on the high school schedule we had a weird chunk of time uh where we would just it would be like a study hall and so I went, okay, well, instead of doing study hall where I'm bored, how about I do a debate round with my friends? Yeah. And so I coordinated that and taught people how to debate and coached and led that. And that's where I got my start. And then incidentally, uh, I think the debater that everyone will know, Isaac Cape, got his start in that little uh, sports time slot. Um, which I think is a funny little story. So I, I can't take credit for any of his accomplishments, but I, I did teach him you the basics there. of how to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was there when it started. Um, beyond that, um, I then led into grade nine where I led the elementary school team uh, and the, or excuse me, yeah, the elementary school team and the middle school team. Uh, and then I, I continued to do that in my time at Selwyn and then um, a little bit after I graduated and then I um, subsequently moved on to uh, teaching for Speechtopia when the Selwyn after school program had its issues in COVID. Um, Speechtopia is one of the third party independent online organizations. Um, and I initially coached just their classes for them. Um, but I have since moved on to coaching their competitive teams. Um, and I'm really, really proud of them. Uh, they've had tremendous amounts of success this summer at a, a whole variety of tournaments. Uh, Are they Canadian based? And uh, so it's out of Beijing, but they are incorporated in Canada. Uh, uh, like they have an incorporation in Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I just like I, I think what gets me about coaching is the connection I make to my students. Um, I get overly emotionally attached <laughs> far too quickly. Um, and I, I know I have cried um, in front of them, like in front of my students at, I, I know, so what I actually wrote my uh, personal essay about for my university applications um, was the debate teaching. Uh, and in particular, I, I brought um, a moment in which um, I hosted an in like a like an in-house tournament for all the Selwyn debaters. And it involved everyone, like all of my students, uh, or as many of them as I could muster, 
and then it was I, I don't I think it was two rooms of CP, and it was the smallest thing. It was terrible, uh, but it meant so, it meant a lot to me, and I I bought little trophies for them and and I got them snacks and at the end of that tournament the thank you I got from my students um, was just so meaningful uh, because it was really the, uh, even as I talk about it, I'm tearing up now, because uh, it was the, the summary of everything I had worked for um, and all the connections that I had made and all the investment I had put in um, and to see them grow and evolve both as debaters and as young adults was so meaningful to me. Um, and even if the age gap wasn't huge, their development was. Um, and so that was a really meaningful experience to me. Yeah, I was lucky to be able to do something similar over the summer, like actually hosting an in-person tournament in Toronto for all the debaters who are graduating, not graduating, and the ones who uh, maybe weren't graduating but had never done an online or never done an in-person tournament before that had not ever seen any of their competitors' faces before. And uh, it was a very nice, very nice community event. And I can relate to that experience for sure. I certainly miss the in-person aspect of, of teaching because um, there's, a, there's a certain connection you get. You know, I, I mean, I'm a big fan of giving candy rewards that <laughs> you, just, you just can't do online and having to tell everyone to turn their cameras on. You, you miss the same kind of the vibes are the same, right? Yeah. It it really isn't. It's funny. I I actually bought um like uh the whiteboard markers because I was supposed to go back to Selwyn and teach yeah. um back home uh in the pandemic when I was still at Dawson. Um, and in the end, there were pandemic logistics that just never led to Selwyn reopening its after school program for me to teach in person. Um, and I, I'm still waiting for the day where I get to use those markers for debate teaching. Yeah, sounds like you've got started with coaching for a long, long time now. Um, and like, I, I don't know what your main demographic is. Have you like taught like mostly beginners, mostly like middling kind of debaters, like really competitive debaters? What's your experience with um, coaching like different levels and how, how has that been for you? Yeah, so I have coached at all different levels um i've taught beginners as young as grade five and six um all the way up to the competitive teams um that i'm that i'm currently with um so yeah of all different ages of all different skill levels um all different mm -hmm. progressions along their debate journey and what do you think people at the competitive level because i think that's where a lot of our listeners are what do you think people at like the competitive level can get most out of out of a coach Ooh, that's a good question i think what a coach can provide is a little bit more objective feedback mm -hmm. and i mean this in two ways the first is when you listen to yourself or even your friends listen to yourself they have a certain degree of bias just because it's your own speech, you're competing against each other. But as a coach, you're not competing against you, right? <laughs> you're trying to work for the same type of goal. And often your coach has 
already gone through the progression you have, um, either as a debater or as a young adult. And so this is the second thing a coach can, can give you, is just the insight that comes with age, in that often your coaches are going to be older, which is why I think university coaches can offer more than um, a lot of high school coaches, um, regardless of how good you are at the high school level. University debating provides unique degrees of insight in terms of just things like base mechanization, which the high school circuit is often more lenient on because everyone lacks it. But at the university level, you start to get debaters that don't lack this mechanization anymore. So especially when you get judges that are in high rooms and have seen what mechanization is or are themselves speaking in the high rooms and know what that mechanization is, they are then able to help you with that. And mechanization is just an example, but in general, when you have seen more of what the debate progression looks like, um, you're more able to advise on it. Yeah. And I think, and, and this is kind of my philosophy on coaching, which is to say, I prefer a less lecture-based, less drill-based setup, or if they are drill-based, they have to be drills that involve giving speeches. Mm -hmm. And I learned this from <laughs> Brian Casey, who, uh, aside from John Bracewell, has to be the biggest influence on, on the way I coach. Um, and, and obviously, so I, from someone, I had an extensive net of, of coaches in terms of Allison first, and then Michaela and Yao after. And obviously, John and, and uh, Dan were there too. But Brian Casey, I attended his um, coaching seminars at the debate camps he hosted before he stopped. Uh, before he stopped doing them, um, and that was a really valuable learning experience because what that was is it was a roundtable of all the best coaches going around and going and, and basically just discussing um, their philosophies on what has changed over the past year in coaching, mm -hmm. um, and so you got people like. Stephen Penner, uh, the late Stephen Penner, uh, Brian Casey, Josh Judah were all there, um, just shooting ideas back and forth. Um, and it was really cool to be able to listen in on that. And Brian Casey's number one, I, I mean, obviously not to paraphrase him or to do him justice, but the thing I really took away from him is the number one thing is to get people speaking. Because the more speeches you do, the more chances you have to address issues, fix issues, get feedback, um, and internalize that feedback. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's not a whole round, you've got to at least be giving speeches uh, so that you can learn from those speeches and take from those speeches. Um, so I, that's my... Uh, like, obviously, coaches can help facilitate those rounds, but they can provide feedback on those rounds that you wouldn't have otherwise gotten um, from a high school perspective. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people right now is just being able to practice those in environments where you can like think critically about what you need to improve, actually get someone to tell you what you need to improve, had someone guide you on how to improve them. Because a lot of the time I hear that people generally know what they're doing wrong, um, especially if they're like competitive debaters, but don't really know how to fix it. So like coaches can offer you some drills. They can tell you what it is that you can work on. You can work on recording your speeches and listening back to them or like blowing rounds for content or like writing cases and preparing them. 
there's a broad number of things that a lot of people uh, can work on that you might not know how to do without the guidance of a coach, for example. I will say in particular, I think a coach that tells you do X or do Y is not doing their student justice in that debating looks different for every individual. Right, yeah. There is no one right way to take notes. There is no one right way to weigh or to impact. I think in my experience, identifying the issue is the first key. Then it's just trial and error. And as a coach, I try and offer my students different strategies to try and, you know, help them. So if, for example, one of my students is struggling with note-taking, I would offer different strategies as to how to take notes and lead them to what might work best. Um, and offering those different paths enables, uh, you know, better learning because A, it makes, it forces the student to be more engaged and to find the strategy that's right for themselves. But B, it forces them to pay more attention in that if you're trying different things, you're engaging different parts of your debate brain that you might not have otherwise engaged because um, each different um, you know, way to structure a whip is going to lead to different emphasis on different types of content. So maybe it helps you come up with more lines of responses, which is helpful in other speeches as well, even if it's not a whip. Um, that's just one example, but I think that's a really helpful strategy. I think that runs pretty contrary to, I won't name any names, but how a variety of institutions teach you to do things right now, like have like acronym, acronym, acronyms, they have like different steps to construct arguments, different ways that they want you to do things. And I think that your philosophy on it is actually really cool because it lets people to, it allows people to find what works best for them because if you observe the top top debaters in the in the university circuit a lot of them debate really differently they come from different regions of the world they have different backgrounds and experiences and ways they've been taught to debate and they all kind of work even if they don't follow a specific structure or do things the same way as long as you're achieving the basic fundamentals of what you need to do in your in your speeches and your debates you're able to mold it to what works best for you now that's that's something that's not easy to do it's certainly easy to be told exactly what to do and emulate it but if you want to really reach your potential i think doing something like uh, like being able to figure out how you want to solve a problem yourself and in your own way is probably something that is a very helpful thing to do in, in your arc of improvement I will say in particular on some of those strategies that the organizations you mentioned use uh, is they exist as tools in the toolbox not to use the debate. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> not to use the uh, debate term for it. But I think those like acronyms for argument construction or idea generation are helpful to a point, but you need other sources for which, for example, to draw arguments from. Mm -hmm. um, so even in my introductory seminar on when I do extensions, I give um, two or three different ways, different areas to find arguments in. Um, and it gives my students tools in the toolbox for when they go ahead and pursue those extensions. 
it's not to say that what they're doing is wrong. Uh, it's just helpful at different points in your debate journey. What I do have a problem with, though, is when organizations provide scripts, because then you're not using, you're not engaging your brain, your creative mind. Yeah, exactly. In that, I think there's a certain degree of debate that, I mean, A, I just think it's enjoyable <laughs> to not have to write your own script or to read off of a printed manuscript. Like, Mr. Speaker, the motion before the House today. And look, I understand why this is helpful for beginners because it's a nice lead-in. Uh, but I think providing that crutch makes it difficult to take that crutch away later. And this is my personal philosophy. Um, I will try and get my students to get rid of that crutch as soon as possible when they come to me from other coaches who will use that because it takes them out of their comfort zone in the best way possible. I, I, I mean, this is also part of my philosophy of how I don't care about public speaking. Um, and I don't care about uh, a lot of the stylistic world schools uh, stuff. I, I care much more about content and I care more about if my students are saying smart things than if they're saying them nicely. Um, and this is partly the university philosophy, but even in high school, I, I, I held this belief. Um, it's just that it's more fun to not care about public speaking in my opinion. <laughs> um, and I think debate should first and foremost be a fun activity. Um, so I'm, I'm not here to snub everyone of the joy of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, last few things I'll bring up on is for yourself, um what were the things that you thought you got most out of a coach uh that that helped you improve the most in your in your journey debate so far oh my goodness um where to start i think the first is just my coaches were all genuinely fantastic people um so i mean the the lewis twins michaela and yao uh and then allison duff before them if Anyone around still remembers Allison. Um, and then the institutional um, coaches for Sullen House uh, were John Bracewell uh, and, and Dan Elbling and, and Nancy Bear for a little bit more of the French side. Um, were all just such nice people to be able to interact with at tournaments. Um, and they were really guiding figures for me beyond debate life as well. I mean, John Bracewell was my... English teacher, Dan Elbling was my math teacher. <laughs> so it was cool to be able to connect with them on a more personal level through debating. Um, and to be able to go to tournaments with them and be able to talk to them after rounds and gain insight as to the, uh, uh, just who my judges were. I think the biggest thing that they gave me though, um, and, and this is, is in particular for Michaela and Yael uh, and Allison, was a lead into the McGill debating unit. Um, because I was involved in McGill summer practices before I was even in CJAP. I was involved in the MDU um, as a high school, like as a high schooler, I went to MDU practices. I was there for um, like novice rep elections one year <laughs> as a high schooler. So I, I had been going to those practices for so, so, so long. And the MDU holds a very dear place in my heart, um, which is why every chance I can to get involved in tournaments like Carnival, I do. Um, I highly recommend that anyone listening goes to the McGill High School tournament in, in the fall. Um, 
because it is always so well run. Um, and being able to in be introduced to the university circuit through them gave me a sense of comfort because especially as a CSHEP debater where you're a year younger at an institution without much foundation in the circuit, you really have to find your own feet. And going in with other friends in the MDU gave me that backing um, and enabled me with other CSHEP friends to be able to go and explore the university circuit in a way I don't think I would have otherwise been comfortable in. So beyond all of the actual coaching they gave to me at the high school level, I think the most important thing was how they transitioned me into university in what would have otherwise been a very difficult process. And especially when we hit COVID, I finally did a tournament with Michaela. We went to Leger together, we broke, and that was also such a fun and wholesome experience. Um, so that, that whole transition and being able to go through that process with them was a lot, like, was really meaningful to me, um, even if I've never verbalized this to them. Well, it sounds like they have a lot of thanks to be received. And also, sounds like you had, like, a really unique transition into the university circuit, uh, especially compared to everyone else who just kind of shows up at McGill or Hard House, and then just a yeah. central knob, and then now you're part of the circuit now, which is happening pretty soon. I'm really excited for that tournament. Um, we're in the midst I of mean, running it. Yeah. Yeah. My transition in particular was muddled up through CJET because, um, it, for those of you who don't know, CJET is a Quebec-only system where you graduate high school in grade 11, do two years at CJET, which is our version of community college, and then if you choose to stay in province, you do three years of university. So in your first year of CJEP, you go to the university circuit. Dawson and Marianopolis are both um, university debate teams, um, but they neither of them really have much debate infrastructure. Um, Dawson certainly did not have a sizable budget, um, and neither did Marianopolis for that matter. We both ran our own high school tournaments, but... Um, through sheer force of will alone. <laughs> um, so to be able to make my own way, I went to McGill practices when I was at Dawson. I went to Concordia practices when I was at Dawson. Shout out to the Concordia Debate Society. Um, so I found my university footing as much through those societies as I, as, as I did through Dawson because um, Dawson practices at a certain point even through our best efforts, were one round, if any rounds at all, because we just struggled to get members. Because even if we're a big school, um, it's not a big debate school. Right, yeah. Um, and so being able to have Miguel and Concordia there to help that university uh, transition was really helpful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hope people listening get to have a taste of the university circuit one day, because, well, e even me, I can't say I've had a proper taste. I don't know how it is down there at Tufts um, for your tournament, <laughs> but um, we haven't had, I haven't been to any tournaments in person uh, for on the university level. So the first one I'll be doing is I'll be helping to run Central Nov, and then it will probably be Hardhouse IV, so I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I've done a handful of in-person tournaments on the APTA circuit, mm -hmm. um, but online university debate has also been fantastic for me because um getting from tufts in boston 
to some places is just difficult. Um, yeah, because I was for sure. To pay for things like airfare. Um, and so being able to partner with people internationally has been really exciting for me. Um, I mean, the irony that I'm a, a student in the United States and I did a tournament virtually every weekend this summer and none of my partners were from, we're from the, the state <laughs> is, it, it's, I think, a testament to what online debating has done. It has made the circuit so much more accessible. You've been able to make friends from just about everywhere. Um, and I think that's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah. Uh, that online debating is provided to the university circuit. And I, I, I hope that a hybrid format continues, although I, if I'm going to be honest, I can't see that happening. I see everything coming back in person. Mm. Um, I don't know about in the U.S. Like, for this year, um, up here, it's looking like it's going to be at least somewhat hybrid. Western Ivy is running hybrid. Um, I know McGill is running one of them in person and one of them online. The, the Bonanza tournament that uh, runs in the fall usually didn't get that many people anyways, and we don't want a repeat of nine teams showing up. So we're running that one online. Uh, so we'll probably continue that there'll be online tournaments where people can come come from all over the place and compete compete all together. And I, I, I kind of hope it stays that way too. I think you let people have like kind of an easier entrance into um, debating, and also you still get to have those on those in-person tournaments once again yeah that's one of those things we're just gonna have to wait and see yeah Alrighty, with that uh i think that's a good place to call it for today uh i think people probably should be able to take a lot away from things we talked about on university and university admissions and also a little bit about coaching so uh i certainly enjoyed this conversation i hope you did too um you got any final shout outs before we wrap it up uh no thanks to you for having me on um i I, and uh i think it's funny that you brought me on especially considering i got the shout out in the first episode um (laughs) but i think i did all my my shouting out to to people throughout the duration of uh of this podcast very nice Alrighty, it's been a pleasure to have you here Uh, i hope everyone at home has enjoyed this is the ETT podcast signing off have a great day